Welcome to Cato Audio for September 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Simone Weishelbaum of the Marshall Project and Patrick Giacomo of the Institute for Justice detail some of the vexing problems surrounding federal law enforcement task forces. Nolan Gray of the Mercatus Center takes on a very strange claim by the president about his opponent's plans for suburban America. And Cato's John Glazer details what we might expect in the foreign policy realm from a Joe Biden presidency. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. This month, the Cato Institute will host its annual Constitution Day, this time because of obvious reasons. The event will be virtual, but of course, you can join us for it virtually, as you may have in the past joined us for it virtually. But here to talk about what we will likely see in this next edition of the Cato Institute Supreme Court Review, the first and best review of the most recent Cato Supreme Court term, Ilya Shapiro, director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute, and Trevor Burris, a research fellow at Cato and the editor of the Cato Institute's Supreme Court Review. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Good to be on as always. Well, let's uh, let's begin uh, with some of the cases that were uh, that were in this term of the ones that, uh, you know, we talked about that we were going to discuss ahead of time. Uh, to you, Ilya Shapiro, what was the most surprising? I think the most surprising was probably the Second Amendment case that ended up being a mootness case. Uh, this is New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus City of New York, which had a weird rule that uh, New York City was so anti-guns that you have to leave your gun in the city if you're going to leave. Um, you can't take it to a shooting range or a second house or or what have you. And so this was the first Second Amendment case that the court took up in over a decade uh, with Kavanaugh replacing Kennedy. Finally, apparently, there were the votes to look at this and start defining the scope of the right and how lower courts should look at it. Uh, But New York City, having won in all the lower courts, once the Supreme Court took it up, just didn't want didn't want the Supreme Court ruling on it. And so uh, uh, changed the rule, got rid of it. New York uh, state legislature said no municipality can have such a rule, salt of the earth over it. Uh, and so it became a mootness case. And at the end of the day, the court, by a six to three vote, decided that the issue was was moot. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh wrote to say, uh, nevertheless, uh, the dissent's points on the merits are well taken and there are many worthy petitions uh, coming up that we should uh, reconsider. But a funny thing happened a couple of months later when these petitions were taken up, they were all denied. There were 10 Second Amendment cert petitions, uh, any variety of types of uh, issues that the court could have taken up, whether the right to carry open or concealed, magazine capacity limits, you name it, and they denied them all. And the same day, they denied uh, a slew of cert petitions in qualified immunity cases. The commonality there, something to do with uh, uh, crime regulation, I suppose, but also Justice Thomas was the only one who dissented uh, from the denials in both of those issues. Uh, Since that occurred uh, to you, Trevor, do we have any sense why the the Supreme Court moved the way they did on qualified immunity? 
Uh, well, I want uh, qualified immunity is a little bit more vexing because we actually got a kind of scoop um, in this Joan Biskupic, who wrote about the court and has an inside source, and on the Second Amendment cases, actually said that Roberts had told his colleagues that he basically will not be a vote to take another Second Amendment case, which is very interesting in light of the way Roberts has behaved recently and tried to keep the, the court out of political phrase. And of course, guns are about as big of hot button issues you can have. Qualified immunity is a little bit more vexing. Uh, there was a, a variety of there are always qualified immunity cases are very, you know, they're very specific, usually a pretty tragic story. And, uh, you know, it it's not clear, especially given the climate about police, why they decided not to take these. Uh, it could have been, again, a controversy problem. Uh, it could be that they don't want to wade into the police at this time when it's such a hot button issue, and maybe next year they would they would take it up. But I, I don't actually have that confused me more than the guns one by far. Uh, on employment discrimination, uh, the case is known as Bostock or Bostick. And this was about uh, transgender individuals being discriminated against and whether or not they were protected by previously existing federal law. So what was that? What was the final analysis in that case? And uh, what were the arguments? Right. The Bostock actually came down the same day that the Second Amendment and qualified immunity petitions were all denied. So it was a, a, a big day. Uh, Cater did not get involved in the Bostock case. I mean, we'd filed on gay marriage or uh, uh, not criminalizing uh, gay sex or anything like that. Those are constitutional rights issues. This was a, a, a an argument about statutory interpretation, whether the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VII, uh, which prohibits adverse employment actions because of sex, uh, whether that includes actions taken because of sexual orientation or uh, gender identity. Ultimately, the vote was six to three to say yes. In 1964, nearly 50 years ago, uh, those protections were already written in, uh, even though in the last decade, I mean, Obama administration civil rights officials had testified before Congress saying, please, Congress, uh, add these protections to the law. Nobody really thought, you know, forget the intent of the uh, the Congress in 1964. Nobody, you know, even now uh, really thought that, that those protections were there. But this was a textualist analysis. It was Justice Gorsuch writing for the majority saying that sex, because of sex, naturally, uh, inextricably includes sexual orientation, gender identity, which are, which are tied into that concept of sex. Uh, I, you know, these, this is a closer case than I think both sides made it out to be, and there's nothing uh, bigoted, whichever side of the, the case you were on. Justice Kavanaugh, I think, had the better of it in dissent, where he said that uh, uh, Gorsuch was being hyper-literal uh, in his analysis, because even now, even in 2020, forget 1964, if someone's fired because they're gay, we don't say that they're fired because of sex. That just rings odd to, to our ear, the way that common uh, English speakers understand uh, that term. And so it was a battle of differing textualists. Uh, Justice Chief Justice Roberts moved over to join that majority, uh, presumably to make it a six to three rather than a five to four. But this case had a lot of people, kind of a lot of conservatives renting their garments about what happened to originalism and textualism. And this is all uh, you know, a, a waste of time. We need to seek uh, result-oriented judges or this so-called common good constitutionalism, which is a bigger uh, uh, construct. But, you know, several weeks later, when Justice Gorsuch uh, wrote uh, the most religious liberty-protecting opinions in several other cases, I think that caused those same people to be scratching their heads. 
and you see uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh has uh, been pointed out last year, and we now more know more this year. Uh, last year, it was the the most disagreement between two justices appointed by the same president since sometime in the early 60s, I think 61 or something. And they're very different. And Gorsuch is a hyper-literal textualist, probably the most literal textualist since Hugo Black. Uh, he reads the word and he says, this is what this means. And therefore, he applies the law. Uh, and so it actually makes him somewhat predictable, even though conservatives get maybe a little bit upset about it. Uh, speaking of uh, literal interpretations. Um, the question posed here in uh, the notes that you sent me, Ilya, is Oklahoma constitutional? Uh, <laughs> the case is McGirt v. Oklahoma, uh, and it dealt with jurisdiction and um, what certain parts of Oklahoma actually are with respect to the United States of America. So what was McGirt about? And this is another uh, Gorsuch opinion, I believe, right? Right. This was uh, one where it was Gorsuch plus the the more liberal justices versus the other more conservatives. Um, the, the court has had this case, some version of it for, I think, four years now uh, and just could not resolve it because first Scalia died and then Gorsuch was recused from a different case because it uh, he had sat on, on one of the panels. And finally, they resolved this. It's, it's based on whether Congress had ever abrogated certain treaties uh, and certain uh, authority or jurisdiction for, for various purposes in eastern Oklahoma, basically the, the, the eastern half of the state, which includes Tulsa, where I actually was three weeks ago. I made the joke before my presentation that this is my first time on an Indian reservation. The, the ruling was five to four that indeed Congress had not abrogated uh, these treaty rights. And so the Creek Nation uh, is sovereign, uh, has uh, direct consequences for criminal jurisdiction matters. It means the state of Oklahoma doesn't have authority to prosecute. It, it all gets thrown into federal court. There might be deputized special uh, U assistant U.S. attorneys or something like that. Um, and then also things like uh, casino licensing, uh, regulation of oil and gas, very important in that state. And who knows? There's it, there's going to be a lot of litigation over exactly what it means. It doesn't it doesn't cast any doubt onto people's title. If you own a house or a condo in, in Tulsa or other part uh, thereby, it doesn't mean that you no longer own it. Uh, but there are uh, very tricky uh, issues, uh, regulatory issues, tax issues, and, and so forth uh, that are going to be litigated for uh, you know a decade or more. And if I understand correctly, I spoke with the, about with Walter Olson about this for a podcast when the uh, issue was, uh, when the opinion was, was released. And of course, like some other folks, I thought, well, are all those people in the eastern side of Oklahoma, are they going to lose their houses? But of course, no. But the uh, the issue seems to be just because you, the federal government, have largely pretended that these obligations don't exist uh, doesn't mean that you've gone out in public and said, we hereby reject our obligations uh, to the, the Native Americans with respect to uh, the, their territory. So uh, it, that seems pretty important. And I imagine that there are a whole lot of people who are now looking at previous actions that the federal government has taken that contravene their obligations. Trevor? Yeah, well, you put it out correctly, and it ties back with the the Bostock case, where 
Gorsuch writing, again, hyper-literal textualist saying, this: you haven't done this yet. I'm reading the law. You didn't do it. You can always do it. My job as a judge is to apply the law. Congress, you can go back and fix this. You could have done it back in the day. Um, and that's part of the th- one of the theory of judging. It's kind of like uh, it's like a theory of reading contracts. If you if you read contracts very literally, uh, it encourages people to write better contracts. And if you read laws very literally, it hopefully encourages people to write better laws and do and do what they should have done maybe years ago. All right. Uh, on education, our our friends at the Institute for Justice were uh, handling part, if if not all, of this case. That is Espinoza, and this dealt with. Uh, I guess, religious liberty and uh, school choice. Yes, it's been a long standing uh, in the in the upcoming Supreme Court review. We actually have Justice Clint Bollock of uh, the Arizona Supreme Court who's a co-founder of the Institute for Justice who worked on these kind of uh, these religious liberty and education cases. One of the big problems with vouchers or tax credits or some method of of funding uh, private education was that many constitutions, many state constitutions, depending on if you ask the majority in this case or the the dissent, either 37 or 38 states have amendments called Blaine Amendments, which are Anti originally anti Catholic amendments that prohibit money going to any usually the word is sectarian cause, which is so it's a it's like a attempts to heighten the separation of church and state, I guess. And this was passed mostly to stop money from going to Catholic schools and many and these still are on the books. This was a huge problem in Montana, which had a tax credit program that did not discriminate between religious schools and non religious schools. And it, and the Department of Revenue for Montana uh, ruled that the money could not go to religious schools because of the Blaine Amendment of this state of Montana. And then the Montana Supreme Court basically agreed and said, therefore, the remedy is to strike down the entire thing. Uh, Basically, we can't have this without necessitating discrimination based on religion. uh, And so we can't have it at all. And it, it was a long time coming, uh, and, and uh, there was a victory. It was IJ, I think, all the way. I think they took the, the from the beginning, and uh, the the court ruled that that was religious discrimination, uh, and it went beyond kind of you know this sort of separation of church and state. It went, went too far and actually discriminated against religious. And, th- and this follows on the reasoning in the Trinity Lutheran case uh, that you and I have. Discussed in the past, and that was a program to put shredded tires on playgrounds uh, that the the government was it, it's involved. It's really in. where where the rubber hit the road in terms of uh, establishment clause uh, jurisprudence, where the court basically said that uh, uh, just because an organization uh, is religious, uh, you can't by itself, if it otherwise qualifies for a generally applicable program, you can't. Uh, discriminate against them. I mean, this is very different than funding pews or Bibles or something like this, but if it's a generally applicable program, then, then you, can't, uh, you can't do that. And this Espinoza removes the last legal barrier to the expansion of school choice programs. At this point, it's just a political fight. So what does this do to Blaine Amendments? Lots of states have them. I'm speaking to you from a commonwealth that has perhaps the most restrictive set of rules with respect to uh, money going to support public schools and only public schools if it uh, enters the state treasury. Well, it doesn't 
it doesn't strike them down. It neuters their application in these situations. Uh, it's But it's an open question. There's a case on the book that the court didn't overturn called Locke v. Davey, which, which a state didn't want to give money to fund the education of clergy, essentially. And that and that one, they said, well, that's something that the state doesn't have to get involved with. It's, it's, a, it's a barrier that the state can erect. So somewhere between that case and Espinoza is where you can apply a Blaine Amendment, but you can't do it to just straight up prohibit money going to religious schools because they're religious. And there are also many states that interpret their Blaine Amendments very narrowly where these issues, they, they've had no problem with school choice programs anyway. Folks at the Cato Institute have, uh, for a long time, been very concerned with the criminal jury trial and what that uh, and what that should entail, what it necessarily entails, whether jurors ought to be allowed to uh, have certain information that might uh, encourage them to acquit, even in the face of facts uh, that someone is technically guilty of a crime. What was the case of Ramos v. Louisiana about? So interestingly, Louisiana um, and Oregon, before this case, were the only states that allowed non-unanimous jury verdicts in even capital criminal convictions. So, you, so Mr. Ramos was convicted by a 10-2 jury, uh, and he this had been going for a while. Now, it's interesting. There's a there's a wrinkle in this, which Louisiana actually repealed this by by ballot initiative. Uh, but it, it didn't do it in time to help Mr. Ramos out. So his challenge was that a non-unanimous verdict violates the right to trial by jury in the Sixth Amendment. And it's a question of what does trial by jury mean? And it clearly means something. Uh, you probably couldn't have a jury of two people, right? You couldn't have a jury of one person. But does it necessitate like a unanimous verdict? And Justice Gorsuch wrote the opinion in another fairly hypertextual self and originalist uh, saying that, yes, it does. And there's another aspect which is interesting that goes with the Espinoza case we discussed, that for both Louisiana and Oregon, the original reason for the non-unanimous verdict was pretty much just straight up racism. Uh, it was a way of negating a possible, after they after Louisiana, after the Supreme Court said you couldn't exclude African-Americans from juries, they figured out a way to basically exclude their vote by saying you could have a non-unanimous verdict. There's an always overarching question in American constitutional laws, like how much is an original purpose possibly taint something? And this, the Blaine Amendment was the same question. That it was originally passed for anti-Catholic purposes, does that actually change much? In the article that will be in the forthcoming review by uh, former legal associate Nicholas Mosvick and his brother Mitch Mosvick, they actually go after Gorsuch's opinion for being sort of bad originalism. And I found it moderately convincing uh, that that Actually, jury trials in the founding era were so different that it'd be weird to constitutionalize all these aspects of it. And there was a period of time when critics, like people who supported you know, criminal justice, were very critical of the unanimous jury requirement because they would take jurors and they would lock them up and starve them and basically torture them until they were unanimous. Uh, and so it's so... So Nick and Mitch go go a deep historical dive and say Gorsuch might be wrong about this, uh, but nevertheless uh, came out and non-unanimous jury verdicts are now a violation of the Sixth Amendment right to trial by jury. Okay. Does that mean anything for people who have other people who've already been convicted uh, under non-unanimous juries? That, that's the case that they are taking up next term. Uh, it's always been a very difficult question of retroactivity of new criminal justice verdicts in the course of someone's trial. Generally, there's this rule about like, is the trial completed? Is the, is the whole judicial process done? Because there's 
legitimately or not, there's a fear if you decide some case and you know, 40% of the inmates in some prison can come back and say, and, and they will be inundated with paper and all this stuff. And so they try and come up with some rule of retroactivity. And that, that, that's an open question. So the court will, will take it up next term. The CFPB uh, is another agency that uh, libertarians have written extensively on, uh, in particular, Todd Zawicki uh, at the Cato Institute. But in this particular case is one of, I don't know, several, it seems, over the years uh, challenging CFPB authority. This one challenged the uh, removability, I suppose, the relative level of removability for the head of the CFPB in whom all power associated with that agency uh, is or was apparently vested. What was the uh, resolution of that case? Well, you, you framed the, the technical question correctly, but let's just step back and understand what's going on here. CFPB stands for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It's one of the most important parts of the 2008 uh, Dodd-Frank legislation that came out of the financial crisis. And this agency is, you know, we've heard of independent agencies before, the Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Communications Commission, Securities Exchange Commission. Uh, this is different than all of those. Uh, this is kind of this not even fourth, but fifth branch of government that sits out there, creates its own rules, investigates, enforces, punishes, and doesn't even get its money from Congress. It gets gets its money from the Federal Reserve, another independent body. Uh, and so it just sits out there and does whatever it wants without accountability with one director at its head, not even a whole commission like those other uh, agencies that I uh, I listed off. And so uh, this amount of power as, as uh, then Judge Kavanaugh called uh, the, the director of the CFPB the president of consumer finance because you know there's buck stops there. There's nobody uh, above that person. Uh, and so the challenge uh, technically is uh, how can this be? If there's no accountability, there's no removability unless the person is uh, you know for cause, meaning you know woefully uh, uh, negligent or uh, some other just very very high standard. Uh, doesn't that violate the separation of powers? And the Supreme Court ruled five to four that it does, but rather than uh, eliminating the entire agency, uh, they decided, uh, or at least three of them in the majority, plus all of those who had been in dissent on the constitutional question, decided that you can just sever, remove the uh, removability provision, as it were, make that uh, director directly accountable to the president, can be replaced uh, at will. Uh, and away we go. Uh, and there are some follow-up cases now figuring out what about actions that had previously been initiated, even if the new, now approved by the president, uh, director ratified them, does that change things? Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, related issues of uh, still separation of powers. But it's we've gotten to the point, as I said, where we have this unaccountable fifth branch of government, and especially Justice Thomas and Gorsuch were taking exception to that. So uh, does this case not then create another problem with respect to uh, this guy, the, the head of the CFPB, as being accountable to the president and the president alone? You mean that, that that's a problem? Yeah. No, well, well, we, we, we want bureaucrats accountable to the political process. I mean, th this way. Absolute, absolutely. Well, the funny story about this, I'm not going to name any names, but a friend of mine who's who's on the D Democrat side, let's say, but he had worked with Elizabeth Warren to some extent on trying to building this uh, agency. This is often called the Elizabeth Warren kind of agency. And he was he supposed and to be the first director, but got uh, held up by the Republican controlled Senate back in the day. 
Exactly. So he and I were talking and I asked him if what was he going to do in this case? And he said that they had a they had like a conundrum, which was that is a when Elizabeth Warren was still in the race, uh, she would want to be able to replace the director of CFPB freely and openly, or she wouldn't be able to enact her policies. Uh, but she was for the general idea of an insulated independent agency, but she didn't. She wanted it not for when she became president. So they decided not to file at all, which is that that's the irony of the situation. And the other one is for longtime listeners, our friend and former colleague, Mark Calabria, uh, is now the director of the Federal Housing Finance Administration, which is set up in an extremely similar fashion. And that he was and, and has been held to be unconstitutional by the Fifth Circuit. And they held that in uh, over on until they decided this, and the Supreme Court has taken that case up to decide it to just decide whether or not Salem law just applies to Mark. In, in my notes for next year, Caleb, you'll see a notation about whether Mark Calabria is constitutional. I have it on good authority that he is very he is extremely constitutional, um, <laughs> whether or not uh, his agency is. Ilya, you wanted to make a note about the, the, this case that has got a lot of news coverage. Um, but, uh, well, how important is it, this idea that, uh, subpoenas for financial records of the current president of the United States, uh, can be issued? Well, it's, it's important for the current occupant of the white house and it's important long-term for relations between the branches of the federal government, Congress versus the executive, uh, and, uh, between the federal executive and states and state criminal processes. There are three cases here involving the question of whether Article 2 protects the president against subpoenas issued by either a congressional committee or a state grand jury. Uh, in Vance versus Mazars, by a 7-2 to vote, the court held that the Supremacy Clause in Article 2 do not provide a blanket uh, uh, immunity, uh, an absolute immunity from uh, state criminal subpoenas to a sitting president. Now, it doesn't mean like uh, Manhattan DA Vance uh, uh, went on the news right away to say that he's going to get the papers. We might, he might not get the papers until he won't get the papers until after uh, the election, because uh, there's further process now in the lower courts. But on the other hand, uh, kind of a split decision, also a seven to two vote, Trump v. Mazers, uh, the court held that lower courts did not give adequate consideration to separation of powers concerns, things like whether the congressional committees were just fishing or using uh, acting under political pretext, didn't need the information for any valid legislative purpose, those sorts of considerations. So effectively a split decision, but either way, uh, nobody's going to get the papers for uh, quite a while. And importantly, actually, though, every justice agreed disagreed with what the Trump administration argued at, in the most extreme version, which was complete, absolute blanket immunity. Uh, that was 9-0, that, that that is not in our law. They're not blanket immune from state process or from congressional process. And Ilya, by virtue of uh, you agreeing to come on to the Cato Audio Roundtable to discuss this, we will discuss supreme disorder, judicial nominations, and the politics of America's highest court, Ilya twisted my arm and said, we have to discuss this new book uh, that you've written that will be available very soon. And publication date is September 22nd, but it's been available for pre-order on Amazon and other places where you can pre-order books uh, for a while. 
Um, I'm excited about this book. It goes, it weaves a, a history of, of jurisprudence, but through the context of why people care about judicial nominations and Supreme Court nominations, especially. And they've cared about that from George Washington's day. This isn't something that started with Brett Kavanaugh, or Merrick Garland, or Clarence Thomas, Robert Bork. Politics has always been part of the process. The, the difference now is that we have the culmination of several trends whereby different interpretive theories map onto partisan preference at a time when the parties are incredibly ideologically sorted, perhaps more than any time since the Civil War. And so all of these reform proposals that people talk about, you know, change the way the confirmation hearings are run, pack the court, change the way, you know, have lower court judges sitting temporarily rather than permanent justices. Some of that gets points for creativity, what have you. But at the end of the day, it's rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Uh, and the Titanic is not the confirmation process, but the product and the centralization of power in Washington and within Washington in the executive branch that then can only be sued. And so the courts decide all of these big political controversies rather than hashing them out in Congress or, or in the states. And so ultimately, separation of powers and federalism, I'm sorry, no easy answers. Uh, that is the only way to turn down the heat until an uh, until and unless that happens, uh, we are going to be fighting over these politically fraught nominations. Constitution Day is September 17th. The Cato Institute will host an all-star set of speakers to discuss the cases of the most recent uh, Supreme Court term and look ahead to the next Supreme Court term. Ilya Shapiro, Trevor Burris, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Caleb. And you can join us for Constitution Day on September 17th at our website, cato.org. When federal task forces partner up with local cops, which procedures rule? Which government, state, or federal can you sue when your rights are violated? Simone Weichelbaum of the Marshall Project has been covering the problems with federal task forces, and Patrick Giacomo of the Institute for Justice is taking a case this term to the U.S. Supreme Court on this very issue. When the feds come into a locality and they have some, we'll say it's a legitimate uh, crime issue that they're they're dealing with. Um, what is that relationship like between the feds and local cops? And to what extent are local cops, what extent do they become feds? So what usually happens is twofold. So first you would have like a short-term partnership, which you usually see with the U.S. Marshals Task Force, where sometimes they'll come in for 90 days, six months, deputize local police officers assigned to that task force, and usually they go after fugitives. What's really interesting about this is that the U.S. Marshals and the FBI can go after local fugitives. So people often ask, like, hey, you know, why are the Marshals kicking down the door of a guy wanted, you know, breaking into my neighbor's house? Well, sometimes police departments and some argue they don't really have much going on and they have this task force. They may assign, you know, the house break in, the serial carjacker to the U.S. Marshals, which will come down, kick down your door. And oftentimes in our reporting, we found kill you without much consequence. And then the other term of the other part of task forces, which are actually really important, I would like to know, are counterterrorism. Like the FBI counterterrorism task force works in many big cities, including where I live in New York City, long-term partnerships 
not going away anytime soon. They look, work on long-term investigations. And we also see this with white-collar crime, cybercrime. So there's sort of a difference that we need to understand. The violence I found and the police accountability issues I found in my reporting tend to revolve around more street enforcement, going after fugitive, kicking down doors, looking for that drug dealer, looking for the gunman you know, who held up three CVSs. There are some problems which we can get into about like racial profiling when you're looking at more counterterrorism task forces. So let's sort of, I put them in two camps. Okay. So uh, to you, Patrick, you have a case that uh, deals specifically with this. This is King v. Brownback. Brownback versus King. Brownback versus King. My, I stand corrected. This is a, a case of, of a young man who was approached by members of a task force. They thought he was someone else and uh, beat him. Um, and you could look up pictures uh, on the internet of Mr. King, and uh, it, it's really uh, gut wrenching to to see what uh, these officers did to him. What uh, what are the problems that task forces present in this case? And we should mention that this case will be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court in its next term. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, just to circle back to what Simone said, this is exactly what Simone is describing. And so you had a fugitive task force that was operating in West Michigan that was a joint uh, venture between the FBI and the Grand Rapids Police Department and several other local agencies. And the way these task forces are supposed to operate is they are supposed to only have federal criteria for, for instance, if a fugitive is at risk of interstate flight and there's this big, long thing called a memorandum of understanding that outlines all of the special rules that are supposed to apply. Um, but in reality, they do what Simone said, which is they essentially just become local police. And whenever the local police department kicks the case to them, they just go do it. And so in this case, um, they were working under a Michigan warrant that arose from a guy breaking into his boss's apartment and stealing a box of empty soda cans and a couple of liquor, liquor bottles. And the local police department had gone to this guy's last known address, hadn't found him, and then had just kicked this over to the fugitive task force. And so in this case, there was an FBI agent and a local police detective who were part of this task force looking for this guy with an incredibly broad description of a white guy between 5'10 and 6'3 wearing glasses. And other than that, um, James King was just an innocent college student who did fall into that incredibly broad uh, description, although he didn't look anything like the photograph that the officers had. And so they pretty much brusquely approached him without identifying themselves. They were in plain clothes, wearing baseball caps and jeans, driving a black SUV and quickly put him up against a car and took his wallet out of his pocket, at which point he thought he was being mugged and tried to run away. And these officers choked and beat him as onlookers screamed and called police. And James was calling uh, for them to call police. And then when police showed up, uh, they actually arrested James much to his surprise, because as it turned out, these two guys were actually cops working as one of these task forces. And so the immediate problem that you see um, from a constitutional accountability standpoint is that it's incredibly difficult to hold officers accountable anyway, but it's even more difficult when they're members of a fugitive task force or any other federal task force, because there are so many shells in that shell game that it makes it very difficult for you as someone who's just been injured or had your rights violated to know exactly how to pursue uh, vindicating those rights because you don't know if these guys are feds, you don't know if they're state officers, what do you do if they're both? And a lot of times what the government will do is just say, no matter what you do, you picked the wrong thing. You sued under too many theories or you didn't sue under enough theories or you sued under the wrong theories and they'll throw your case out. 
Simone, uh, when these kinds of events happen, uh, like they did to Mr. King in Michigan, um, how do local politicians, even local police respond, uh, local prosecutors even respond when they learn that uh, this kind of violation of rights is just not going to be dealt with in the way that they normally would? So I wanted to piggyback on something Patrick had said about um, the memorandums of understanding or memorandums of agreement, which are basically contracts, which in my 2019 investigative piece um, through FOIA and public records requests, I was able to get copies of. So number one, when you read the contract, like, you know, we read our phone bill, what it says is that the local police department, the cops on those task forces will still follow the policy of the local police department. This is how it gets screwed up, as Patrick was talking about. If there's a fatal incident or any type of incident of excessive force, right? Maybe that cop did violate policy, let's say, for not wearing his body camera. But wait a minute, he's deputized as a federal agent. So it doesn't matter if he's not following the policy of like the Atlanta Police Department, which was the subject of my last story. He is now a federal officer who is required not to wear a body camera. And in some after my story came out, they did a pilot program allowing some cities to wear body cameras, which Atlanta decided not to do. But anyway, so that's the first issue. It doesn't really matter what the MOU says because you're still a federal officer, right? Right. Secondly, which I find extremely surprising, is cities sign away their rights for gadgets and gizmos. Oh, look, we can get new guns and cool new gadgets and cameras and all the stuff, robots that I, the gadgets are out of control, basically. But they get all these gadgets and gizmos. They sign away their rights. And then there's an incident. And they're like, oh, no. You know, we want to investigate what happened. So what I found in my reporting is, number one, and which Patrick can explain, the TUI doctrine, which is a Supreme Court case, which basically says that if a state official wants to investigate someone who works for the federal government, the U.S. Attorney's Office has to get involved and basically greenlight that investigation. So if I'm a local prosecutor, I go, hey, now this local cop who's a, now a deputized federal agent who shot and killed a college student, I, I'm curious about his records or whatever documents I want. Usually as a local prosecutor, I subpoena the police department, I get my documents. Can I subpoena now, let's say the U.S. Marshals or the FBI, and Patrick could talk to this? No, you can't. Not if you're a local official. And for some reason, I find shocking. Um, the reason why I pitched a follow-up story is Larry Krasner, of all people, who's this prosecutor in Philadelphia, was going in the media and actually wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying, like, if they set foot in Philadelphia, do something wrong, I'm going to prosecute them. And I was like, and I emailed his office for comment and they didn't really answer my question. How can you prosecute them? Like, what law are you understanding that, you know, maybe I don't understand? And they never answered my question. And Patrick could talk to this more. But I find it extremely infuriating and misleading the public, especially in what's going on after Portland and this confusion about what Trump really is expanding. It's not really expanding Homeland Security agents. It's expanding existing task forces. And I don't I think it's a dishonorable to the public for people like Larry Krasner to go there and say, hey, I'm going to prosecute you because I'm in a liberal city. when really, they don't have authority to do it. Right, Patrick? <laughs> <laughs> Your story here uh, th that was uh, published at the end of July, as more federal agents enter American cities, local leaders can't keep them in line. The subhead critics say mayors should be wary as the Justice Department expands law enforcement task forces. Uh, one paragraph from uh, this story you wrote, President Donald J. Trump's new plan called Operation Legend 
adds manpower to some of these existing teams. The expansion, which began earlier this month, that's July, and was announced last week, uh, is named after a four-year-old boy killed by a stray bullet in Kansas City, Missouri, where the surge began. So, Patrick, I've asked this question to uh, Pat Eddington and Walter Olson of the Cato Institute and others. If the local officials, you know, learn later and only seem to care after the fact, after there's some horrible event that harms one of their uh, citizens, uh, and it's been, been done under the auspices of federal law enforcement, if I'm a governor or a state lawmaker, and I know there are some state lawmakers who listen to this program, uh, what should I do? There, if if there's no legitimate way for uh, prosecutors to take up a case against feds, and essentially these local uh, police departments have the ability to sign away their ability to to uh, uh, enforce some. Uh, state law against uh, federal activity, what should state lawmakers and governors be doing? I, th- I think the most proactive thing that a local or state official can do is is look forward instead of backwards. So once something has gone wrong, it's usually too late because of all the things we've already discussed. And it's very, very difficult for state level officials to hold federal officials, whether they're actual federal officials or sort of these um, these U.S. marshals that are deputized from local officers who are oftentimes still working and being paid by local agencies, it's very difficult to hold them accountable after the fact. And so what local and state officials should be doing is not entering into these agreements to begin with or being very careful about the agreements they enter into and what sort of restrictions or what sort of penalties are attached to them. And from a state level, you could have um, state legislation that would prohibit or restrict local agencies from entering into these sort of task force agreements without some set of criteria or some sort of oversight. Um, But even then, for for several of the reasons that Simone pointed out earlier, um, there's a lot to be afraid of, even if you have a good agreement that says there will be all all these mechanisms of accountability built into the system. And if something goes wrong, um, these will be the sort of punishments that are applied there's really nothing that can be done to enforce those rules. And so in in the King case, for instance, this fugitive task force, one of the requirements for them even opening investigations is that there's some sort of federal claim or pending complaint that the local U.S. attorney's office has has started. And that was not the case here at all. And there's really nothing you can do as the person whose rights have been violated to say they should have followed their own rules. And short of the FBI itself saying, Tisk tisk tisk. We're going to hold the local FBI agent accountable for not following the rules. They basically have zero accountability. All right, uh, Simone. Uh, when you were talking about the crimes uh, for which these task forces are activated, a lot of these don't seem like they have anything to do with something that the federal government ought to be involved in. Is there uh, a case to be made then for? dramatically narrowing the range of crimes for which uh, task forces uh, or local officials may engage with task forces? Well, that would take an act of Congress. And number one, even if um, state officials put state legislation out, sort of narrowing the scope of what local cops could do on on these things, they're still um, overruled by the feds, which is what played out with the body camera issue, right? Like even if cities decided, hey, we really want our cops to do this, the feds pushed back and said, we can't have like city X and Y 
wearing body cameras and City Z not wearing body cameras. We need one uniform policy. The federal government, no matter if it's FBI, U.S. Marshals, or DHS, in the case of Federal Task Force, they're one animal, right? You can't have one policy for one agency or one set of law enforcement officers and another policy for law enforcement Z. So that's one issue. The second issue, Congress is who, is who authorized the marshals to allow them to pick up local warrants. So unless the Congress changes that rule, and good luck with that, or DOJ and DHS, again, top echelon of federal government coming together to saying, hey, let's narrow the scope of our work, which, again, will never happen. So based on former federal officials I spoke to in Washington, even if you have DOJ on the same page, then you have to get DHS involved. And that's really hard to make them agree at something. The only case people came to me is like, okay, we got agreement on this was expanding um, when uh, federal officers and task force agents can't profile. So under um, Eric Holder, under the Obama administration, instead of saying, hey, there's a ban on racial profiling, they were able to expand that to a ban on profiling based on national origin, religion, um, gender, and other things that are very typical things you can't do in the workplace here in America, right? That's the most they could do as far as consensus. So I think what people need to understand, it's so hard to reform federal law enforcement because one, you more or less need Congress approval. If you don't have Congress, two, you need DOJ and DHS working in together to fix these problems. And it's very rare that they agree on something to a point of curtailing their own power. This is what we're talking about, curtailing the power of federal law enforcement. And no, states and cities cannot do that. Okay, Patrick, uh, looks like I struck out with that idea. Um, so to the extent that, that uh, governors and state lawmakers can do something, uh, you know, before we started recording, you indicated that state uh, authorities should essentially wash their hands of uh, involvement with federal police. Yeah. So to, to underscore Simone's point, the, the only thing that states and local um municipalities can actually do that will have a real impact is say our officers will not be part of these task forces and prohibit their officers from joining these task forces or saying if they do then they're they have to be relieved of their duties under state law um, and I, I think if states and localities do that then that could potentially be a position of leverage going forward for how they might be able to in, increase some sort of federal reforms but if it, until that happens, there's nothing else they can do except to withhold their manpower from these task forces. When is your case being heard? So all the briefing will be submitted in September. And at that point, the Supreme Court will give us a date for oral argument. Um, so sometime this fall or early um, in 2021. Simone Weichelbaum is a staff writer at the Marshall Project. Patrick Jacquemo is an attorney at the Institute for Justice. When Donald Trump attacks Joe Biden, there's one critique that, even on the surface, seems pretty absurd. The notion that Joe Biden wants to destroy the suburbs. Nolan Gray of the Mercatus Center argues that, upon closer examination, the suburbs will do just fine. We talked about the regulatory changes a Biden presidency would try to bring to the housing market. The president tweeted out sort of an odd claim and has... I guess since sort of doubled down on that in a series of tweets, as you might imagine, 
one that Joe Biden wants to destroy the suburbs and then insisting that suburban housewives, which is, you know, has its own issues, ought to be uh, reading articles that make that case. And and the genesis of this case seems to be from Stanley Kurtz at National Review writing about the headline here, Biden and the and Dems are set to abolish the suburbs. So what is the genesis of uh, this claim? So under the Fair Housing Act, the federal government has an obligation to sort of crack down on local governments that are using their zoning and land use power to engage in uh, discriminatory uh, housing practices. Uh, so the Obama administration uh, sort of began to develop this rule uh, under the Trump administration. Uh, the Department of uh, Housing and Urban Development under Ben Carson uh, was working to overhaul this rule and revise it and, and focus on municipalities that were consistently blocking uh, affordable housing. Um, and so this was actually uh, had been put out for comment earlier this year, a revised rule. So there was a lot of discussion about the federal government's role in sort of dealing with uh, what's called exclusionary zoning or the use of zoning to uh, block more affordable housing typologies like apartments or, or maybe smaller starter homes. Um, so the federal government was playing a more proactive role there. In part, this was really to uh, address the federal government's early role in promoting a lot of these zoning codes. So in many cases, the you know federal consultants or, 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 or federal programs incentivized uh, local governments to adopt these programs. But now that many cities and, and metropolitan areas have a pretty serious affordable housing crisis, uh, the federal government is understandably looking to roll this back. And it's been odd to watch a lot of these wealthier cities with fairly restrictive zoning then call for federal aid in order to provide affordable housing. And your argument and the argument of lots of libertarians would be simply, well, maybe zoning is the problem. Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the issue is that, you know, we have a mismatch between supply and demand. So in, in certain cities, particularly in a handful of coastal cities, there's enormous demand for new housing and uh, incomes are rising. You know, this is place like places like New York City and San Francisco. Uh, but you have zoning ordinances that make it very, very hard to build additional housing. And these are essentially restrictions on the right of property owners to maybe demolish a small one story house or demolish an old sort of commercial strip and build something, you know, like apartments there, fourplex maybe, or additional sort of mixed use multifamily there. And so there's been a growing consensus, uh, both among progressives, conservatives, libertarians, uh, Democrats and Republicans alike. Um, normally bipartisanship uh, raises some red flags for me, but in this case, it's, it's in a positive direction uh, that, you know, we need to essentially look at some of these regulations that are blocking new housing supply. So you've seen consensus on ideas, you know, such as if your city is consistently blocking new housing, you're not going to be eligible for community development block grants. Or if you're refusing to, you know, build your fair share of housing, we might, uh, you know, withdraw some of your surface transportation grants, right? So this is just a way to nudge uh, local governments to look at some of their excessive regulation in land use markets. And there's been a ton of interest in this. And so this is why it was interesting that the Trump administration sort of is staking out a claim that's uh, increasingly unpopular. Uh, and I can, I suppose I can understand, I, don't, I haven't looked at polling on this, but I suppose I can understand why they would do this. If you look at polls, the the general trend seems to be that Donald Trump is losing suburban women, and these suburban women are most likely homeowners and threatening the value of a home. That's the largest investment that a lot of 
families will will make in their entire lives. So it, it doesn't seem on its face stupid to me. What you're saying is that it's basically wrong. Yeah, I think it, it might be good politics in a limited range of circumstances. I mean, it is worth emphasizing that the, there really has been a sort of bipartisan convergence on liberalization, right? I mean, so of course you have affordable housing advocates, but you also have home builders saying, you know, it's impossible to build the housing that the market demands. Uh, you have sort of economic development groups who are saying, you know, we want to grow and we want to bring on new people, but uh, we have these out-of-date zoning rules that are making it impossible to build new housing or more office space. So going forward, the idea that reducing the level of exclusionary zoning or, you know, in specific parts of town that is breaking up the log jam for creating new housing, this is this is what's being cast as destroying the suburbs? Yeah, I mean, in a certain sense, it's only destroying suburbs if they're dependent on this regulation that completely maintains the status quo. Um, so in, in some cases, there is such enormous housing demand that if you were to eliminate zoning, you know, a handful of these homes would be redeveloped. In the vast majority of U.S. cities, of course, it wouldn't matter at all. Um, most U.S. cities are building enough housing to accommodate the growing supply. Places in the Sun Belt, uh, of course, places in the Midwest where there's not a lot of new supply, uh, they're not facing this pressure. It's really a handful of suburbs and a handful of metropolitan areas that probably would face a lot of redevelopment. And those are places where they've essentially used regulation to, to block any new people from coming in. So let's talk about Houston then. What is the level of housing construction regulation in the Houston metro area. So Houston's famously liberal on land use regulation uh, in the sense that they don't have especially strict rules. So Houston never adopted zoning. Uh, unlike most other cities, Houston actually put zoning to a referendum uh, and voters rejected it uh, three times. Uh, so they have a kind of an unusual system where they place a lot more emphasis on deed restrictions. These are essentially agreements among neighbors about what you can and can't do with your property. So in some areas of the city, you have something like zoning to the extent that a bunch of neighbors have come together and said, none of us are going to redevelop our, our homes into, you know, commercial uses, or we're not going to add an additional floor beyond like 2.5 stories or something like that. Um, but, you know, with among these deed restricted communities, there's really fairly light rules and there's no uh, use segregation. So there's nothing saying, oh, you can't have a corner grocery in a residential area. Uh, and there's also fairly uh, liberal um, density rules. So you can add up as long as you're meeting a lot of the basic uh, health and safety codes that are in place in most cities. Uh, and so from this, Houston has remained an incredibly uh, affordable city, especially when you consider the fact that there's just been exponential population growth and incredible uh, growth in incomes over the past uh, 30 years. The bottom line here is this reads a lot like deregulation. It looks a lot like deregulation. And for the purposes of federal involvement in cities with respect to housing, it is an incentive to deregulate a market, and the, the Trump administration seems uniformly opposed to it and is trying to scare people with it. Right. You know, zoning is very much a New Deal era program. It's the idea that, that government planners can come in and determine, you know, what uses are going to go where and at what densities. And this was fine when we had a lot of cheap land and when cities were growing out, but as cities have had to start building up or adding new density uh, in the existing cities, this has posed a major issue because the regulations don't change to accommodate 
you know, changing demands. And, and really, you know, it's a very Hayekian point, right, that there's just simply no way that a government planner can know more than, you know, one or two years out what the appropriate mixture of uses and densities might be. And so to the extent that cities are reevaluating their zoning and saying, how can we sort of relax some of these restrictions to allow more housing construction and allow the real estate market to really provide what consumers uh, are demanding, uh, this is a positive and this is something that people who support private property rights should be in favor of. Nolan Gray is an affiliated scholar at the Mercatus Center. In the presidential election of 2020, the foreign policy of Joe Biden brings with it, well, a lot of history and arguably a lot of baggage. To the extent Biden is an extension of decades of Washington consensus foreign policy, the foreign policy of Biden's administration would be decidedly interventionist. John Glazer directs foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. For all the criticism of Donald Trump as a a foreign policy president, as the chief diplomat for the United States, um, we can say that he has some strong positive impulses and not a really good idea of how to execute on a lot of those impulses. What do we know about Joe Biden with respect to foreign policy? What are his impulses and uh, how strategic would he be about implementing? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly hard to tell how a potential Biden presidency would pursue foreign policy. It's just uh, in the future, too much speculation, too many things to uh, to think about. But he, Biden does have a long record of foreign policy. You know, he was uh, obviously vice president in which he engaged in a lot of foreign policy activity. He was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for 30 years prior to that. He's taken a lot of uh, vocal positions on foreign policy over the years, so we do have stuff to draw on. Um, I'd say Biden is a candidate that thinks foreign policy is his strong point for the reasons I just mentioned. Um, But he's pretty mainstream on foreign policy, I would say. You know, he voted for the Iraq war, even though he, he pretty rapidly regretted that vote afterwards. During the Obama administration, um, you know, he was an advocate for strong American leadership and exceptionalism on the world stage, but um, frequently less hawkish than some of the other uh, individuals in the Obama administration. So Biden argued against the surge in Afghanistan, for example. Biden also argued against um, bombing Syria after the red line violation and against intervention in Libya. Uh, and for diplomacy with Iran, which was intended to kind of get military conflict off the table with that country. On the other hand, you know, he's he doesn't depart very much from the mainstream consensus in U.S. foreign policy, which is particularly interventionist and hawkish. So, you know, he wants to keep all our allies and all our security commitments abroad. Um, he wants to kind of police the world as an American leadership of, of the international system. He wants to confront Russia and China assertively, um, not very interested in defense cuts. You know, we're excessively overspending on 
superfluous weapon systems and an expansive foreign policy that doesn't serve U.S. interests. And he's just never really articulated a, a, a real desire to see that rolled back and to see our defense budget uh, take a, a necessary cut. The other thing that I'm concerned about is he was a strong advocate in during the Obama administration and seemingly up to now for the kind of what's called the light footprint approach to counterterrorism. You know, he wants to use special forces operations, rapid deployment, and, you know, things like drones, unmanned aerial vehicles, to conduct a kind of borderless uh, strike uh, strategy against terrorist groups all over the world. And, and that, that also uh, presents, uh, to me, some, some problems. So for many countries uh, that are generally hostile to the U.S., we certainly aren't doing ourselves any favors by having, uh, in many cases, any kind of footprint in those countries. We feed a lot of conspiracies about U.S. involvement or in this or that. I'm thinking particularly of Pakistan. Um, but so you're, you're suggesting that Biden would be a consistent voice for having some footprint in a lot of places. Yeah. I mean, for example, he's argued for uh, increasing U.S. troop presence in Eastern Europe to check Russia, for example. Uh, he argued against Trump's, I mean, you can call it, kind of call it a, a withdrawal from Germany, a partial withdrawal of some of the troops that we have deployed to Germany are coming home and the rest of them are being redeployed and rotated throughout Europe. But Biden obviously criticized that and said we should restore fully our alliance with Germany and, and including a deterrent tripwire forces there. So. so what has he said about South Korea, where the U.S. has, what, 30,000 troops uh, pretty close to the North Korean border? Yes, yeah, certainly no uh, no movement from the Biden camp for removing those troops or revising the treaty that we have with South Korea. I think on North Korea, Biden takes a generally um, mainstream approach. He doesn't want to do face to face diplomacy the way Trump has with with Kim Jong Un, but he wants to kind of garner international support from both allies and countries like China to get kind of an international negotiating uh, strategy going on nonproliferation in North Korea. Uh, it would be odd if Biden had spoken out uh, in eight of the last 12 years about uh, presidential overstepping with respect to dropping lots of bombs in countries that the U.S. is not officially fighting, given that he was vice president during those times, but outside of the times where he his salary depends on him not understanding things like that, uh, has he been critical of presidents that have uh, apparently overstepped their uh, constitutionally delegated authority when engaging with other countries? You know, I can't say from my perspective that Biden has been stronger on that issue than anybody else. I think typically uh, both Republicans and Democrats tend to criticize uh, executive overreach on war powers when it's politically convenient for them. And I'm sure if you look through, you can find examples of that in, in, in Biden's uh, statements. But it doesn't seem to me that as president, Biden would be one who would willingly and unilaterally forfeit the expanded powers of the executive branch in, in, in conduct of military affairs uh, because people tend not to forfeit 
expanded power. Um, he hasn't been a foremost critic of, for example, um, the Obama administration's refusal to seek congressional approval for its military intervention in, in Libya, for example, or, or um, you know, renewing the authorizations for the use of military force in 2001 and 2002 in order to make some amount, of, you know, in order to have the law at least somewhat uh, support ongoing operations abroad. So, no, on on the on the question of executive war powers, um, he's certainly not a, a great defender of Congress's constitutional prerogatives there. John Glazer directs foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. Even during this pandemic, the world is, for the most part, getting better. Major concerns like climate change, marine plastic pollution, declining wildlife populations are still with us. But many of these problems are already improving as a result of favorable economic, social, and technological trends. In a new book from the Cato Institute, 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know, authors Ronald Bailey and Marion Tupi provide busy people with quick, easily understandable and entertaining access to surprising facts they need to know about the true state of the world. 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know is available now from online retailers and at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.